Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Elliot shares his winding path from majoring in mechanical engineering to breaking into management consulting at Accenture. Learn why he decided to go to Harvard Business School to break into private equity, but made one important pivot before enrolling. Listen to how he hustled during school to make his dream a reality and why he ended up pivoting after a year to work in sales and strategy at Workday. There's some very important lessons in this episode about independent sponsors as a model to get into private equity or get that private equity experience. So pay attention and learn why he eventually ended up setting his own M&A advisory diligence business. Enjoy. All right, Elliot, welcome to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. So it'd be awesome if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I started my career in management consulting at Accenture. I then left and worked for a search fund um, here in Atlanta. I then went to business school at Harvard, got into the private equity world, um, worked at two different private equity firms, then started two of my own independent sponsor private equity um, firms after that. And now I run an M&A advisory firm focused on helping independent sponsors and acquisition entrepreneurs execute buyout transactions. This is going to be a fun one. Um, I, I love your background because it's, it's different from what we typically see. It's a little more entrepreneurial. Um, so I love it. So let's start Excellent. all the way back actually at college. So um, you were at uh, Morehouse, right? Morehouse and Georgia Tech. They have a dual degree engineering program. Uh, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, you know, mechanical engineering doesn't scream finance or consulting. <laughs> no. uh, so tell me what was the thought process around doing engineering and you know, why you ended up in consulting after that? Sure. Um, so sometimes they say you got it honestly. So both of my parents were financial consultants and accountants and CPAs. And so engineering was a great um, sort of undergrad major to have. But I think very soon when I got to tech and got into my major classes, I realized I was best at the intersection of having conversations with people and the quantitative analysis. And so if I didn't play my best hand, I, I knew I'd be in trouble. So that sort of doesn't, like, me. doesn't mechanical engineering just mess up your GPA though? Or you, I mean, you did really well. So I guess not. <laughs> it, uh, yes. So or your so social far, or your social life isn't like mech like the hard, one of the hardest uh, majors. It, out there. It's, uh, I, I wear my Georgia tech hoodie uh, like I was going to war in it. I mean, it really does have that kind of uh, disposition, but I would say um, uh, ME was difficult. Um, and so part of my process through everything that I've done, you, you'll start to hear this again and again, is learning how to craft your story in the language that you want to tell it. Got it. Okay, so you were you did this dual kind of program with Morehouse in Georgia, uh, Georgia Tech. Mm -hmm. um, graduated in Mackey. Tell me about like your did you 
did you do internships like your junior year, like typically like a consulting internship? And tell me how you kind of started even stumbled upon management consulting. It sounds like your parents were in it. So they kind of maybe pushed you in that in that direction. To some degree, um, they weren't a management consulting, more just regular consulting. And my parents were kind of old school, Chicago and Detroit. Um, <laughs> I did five different internships. So I was in school for five and a half years between the two undergrad degrees, um, yep. two bachelor's degrees. And so I interned with Procter & Gamble, um, Johnson Controls, um, CH2M Hill Engineering Company, Accenture, where I ended awesome. up starting my career, General Motors and a plant that's uh, here that's no longer in, in, in operation. And so I had a really good um, opportunity to sort of try my hand at different things. I think your listeners would probably be interested because I've, I've used your site many times. Part of my cheat code was just to get those two to three month opportunities to see if I like something. Mm -hmm. um, so I had five of those before I ever graduated from college. Yeah, that's super useful. You're also a little older when you graduate. So exactly. it's like you're a little more mature. You kind of know what you want. So, but then I guess by junior year, by your fourth year summer, did you kind of know or had you found that thing? Like what was your thought process in terms of, was so Accenture, me, was Accenture like that summer before you graduated? Accenture was two years before I graduated. I got lucky in that I worked at Accenture on the technology consulting side. I remember telling my recruiter, um, I would not be interested in consulting on the technology side, but if they had an opportunity in strategy, I'd be interested. Um, they did not recruit from Morehouse or Georgia Tech for strategy. They had like five schools they recruited from. However, they did allow interns from previous years to interview for their strategy practice. And so that's how I got hooked up. And then I ended up having my full-time job offer a year and a half before I graduated. So I did an internship after I actually already had my full-time offer with Accenture. Got it. Okay. So you already had, so you, you were kind of set and you were able to actually maybe enjoy yourself at the end of your college, college years, I hope. Yes. I even called Accenture and asked them, Hey, so I'm in school now. Is there a certain GPA I have to have <laughs> to keep my job offering? Because I actually have an ability to change it now at the end of the day, I can't. So please don't surprise me. That's funny. That's what they're like. They're like, just don't completely bomb. Is that what they basically told you? Essentially, you know, they couldn't tell you anything specific, but they kind of gave me don't don't completely bomb. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. So you're okay. So you're starting in Accenture. Tell me how that transition was coming out of school. Um, and well, just before we even jump there, a little bit about school life. So you said it was a dual degree five years. What did you do first? Was it like you're going back and forth or like what was the last one? So it was Morehouse and then Georgia Tech. So the program is, is, is amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Think about a liberal arts college, um, HBCU, Morehouse College, the, the school that Martin Luther King went to, and then, you know, Georgia Tech, the top five, and, and ME and top three um, mechanical engineering program. Yeah, amazing. So I started at Morehouse and I finished a full degree in three years and then transitioned to Georgia Tech. And I was sort of halfway through my engineering curriculum and then finished an engineering degree. That transition was hard as nails. Anybody who's gone from a liberal arts college to a top five institution of technology knows that it's a it's a Mike Tyson punch to the gut. Um, but so is life. So it kind of prepared me for a lot of things thereafter. Transition was tough. I actually pledged a fraternity at Georgia Tech, and I think that kind of helped balance me, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and at a certain point, to be fair, it was get out of school with your degree and a decent GPA. Mm -hmm. and sort of leverage it to go do what you want to do after. So I wasn't, I wasn't a plus uh, Georgia tech guy. I was getting out with the job Georgia tech guy. And that's fair. I think a lot of people are happy to have a job if they, especially in this market, right. Um, coming Absolutely. out of school. So, okay. So you're, and you were graduating what year? 2006. I graduated December, 2006. Before all the shit hit the fan. Okay. So, yes. um, 
So you got the job. You're you're working at Accenture. You are in strategy where you want to be. Yes. Yep. That's awesome. Um, tell me a little bit about why strategy. Why why did you kind of want that? Was it just like the more prestigious role? Was it because it had a better trajectory long term? And how did you even know that? So I probably should have mentioned. So one of the things that I did while I was in undergrad is I attended the Harvard Summer Ventures and Management Program at Harvard Business School. And so I had like a one week view of business school at Harvard. So I had a sense that I wanted to go and I knew that, you know, as investment banking was one of the more clear pathways at that time, strategy consulting was the other. So I kind of had a sense that this was in the wheelhouse of where I wanted to go. So that was one of the reasons why. Um, another reason and kind of the transition question you had it's interesting coming from engineering to business because I had not taken a true business class when I started at Accenture. So I was heavy quant, knew my math, but like return on assets, return on investment, reading 10 Ks, none of it. And so I had to really get up to speed on that quickly. And, and for my fellow sort of technical folks that get into business careers and they feel a little out of water, I remember asking some of my higher up sort of Help me understand, you know, like balance sheet stuff. So when we were in 2008 and all the shit hit the fan, yeah. And now we have to do cash flow management for people and not profit improvement. Yeah. And now you have to do balance sheet math and not income statement. I remember asking people, sort of, how do you calculate cash flow off of this balance sheet? Blah blah blah. And they said, oh, you know, the math's too complicated. You're learning in business school. And I was like, who's lying to me? I'm a mathematician. If you can't understand and explain something to me that's mathematical, somebody's lying. So that was a great sort of additional push to go to business school. Got it. Okay. So um, is that kind of when you, did you go right after Accenture? I'm looking at your LinkedIn right now, trying to get the sheet. Yep. So, so you went from 07 to 09 um, at Accenture and then that's when you went into HBS? That's it. Yep. Okay. And so I tell me a little bit about your time there. What was it like? Was it eye-opening? Was it, was it great? You didn't, did you love it? And what was the deal um, coming out? Loved it. I, I also, particularly for, for this audience, uh, I'm, I knew probably beginning of 2009 that I wanted to get into private equity. Mm -hmm. And so I got the advice that I should quit my job early and try to get an internship in the industry. So it's not on my LinkedIn, but I actually quit um, Accenture early in June and did an internship with the search fund um, launched by an HBS guy here in Atlanta. Before you went to HBS. Exactly. Which, which is sort smart. of my hunting license. <laughs> you get the, you get the pre-MBA private equity experience. Um, so, so talk to for the listeners that don't really understand what a search fund is, explain to them kind of just real quick. Um, it's a single how they entity private equity um, instrument. So private equity firms like Blackstone are buying companies all the time. Imagine a entrepreneur who wants to go buy a single company and run it um, as opposed to just buying it and being an advisor. So they're typically people fresh out of business school or sort of younger in their career that raise two years of salary to go search for a company and then use those same equity investors to fill the equity part of their transaction to then go buy a company, hopefully grow the company over five to 10 years, um, sell it and, and get a return that way. Yeah. And so typically they can, so people can think of a search fund, just adding to that, it's almost like a mini private equity fund that's an ind independent to, to one person. So the, the GP, the general partner kind of running it is just this, this kid, young kid that's sharp and smart and wants to go take a new business, buy it and you know, ideally triple it in size or quadruple in size. That's it. Um, and okay, so so um, is that typical, like in terms of size, like for a search fund, it can typically be a, a company under like a million revenue all the way up to like 5 million revenue, depending on how, how big of investors you have behind you, right? 
Exactly, what you choose to do. I think my company was about a million dollars in EBITDA, so uh-huh. a little bit over $5 million in revenue at the uh-huh. time. And how did you, so that internship, that was the internship that you helped, you helped actually close that deal or you, you helped work on it? I helped do an acquisition screen for an add-on they were looking to do. Okay. Um, they, they didn't end up consummating it, but sort of I, I looked at the industry and found, you know, 50 companies that could have been decent targets for an add-on, you know, pulled what information I could out of the internet, you know, called CEOs, cold called, all that kind of stuff. So that was just good experience going. to list on the resume because so you, you knew once you went to HBS, in order to try and break into PE, having that would have been, it was super important. Exactly. And the, the HBS guy who I was working for was an advocate. And so, of course, they made sure I was doing so, things that could be helpful. Yeah, all the listeners out there that say, I want to go private equity. If you don't do something like this before business school, it makes your life infinitely harder. I've had about two guests on this podcast that have managed to break into private equity from investment banking post MBA with no PE background. But I can tell you, it it is super super, super rare because there's so few seats for post MBA. I would even say, even if you have a search fund on your belt, you're still going up against guys and gals that have like two to three to four years of pre MBA, you know, direct investing experience. So you're still at a disadvantage, but okay. So you got that on your resume. It was smart. You, got, you did that for what? Six months? Uh, actually more like four. It was short. Okay. And then you ended up uh, enrolling at HBS and then tell me how the recruiting went. That, you know, right, right off the get, get go, um, you started kind of networking. What was the uh, two answers to that? So first off, I was so naive. I, I read this book, The Glow Cap Guide on how to get a job in private equity. So I knew it was going to be tough, but I actually thought that the private equity firms that the people at HBS landed in would all come to be part of the official hiring process at HBS. So I remember talking to a person next to me who was a ex bank cap, like, hey, when's bank cap coming? When's bank cap coming? And then probably a month and a half, two months into school, uh, she told me, hey, look, Bancap's been here. We've all given recommendations on who we think would be great. Uh, you didn't make the recommendation list. Uh, most of the private equity stuff is informal and they're not posting it publicly. And I was like, whoa. So it was kind of welcome to the jungle two months into business school. And then I just sort of got on the phone. I mean, I probably called 100 people my first year and 150 people my second year. Mm-hmm. to try to find one single internship. And fortunately, through calling and then a local firm here in Atlanta that I chased down pretty aggressively during Christmas break, um, was able to sort of close them soon after Christmas break. So it was a grueling process, one that was kind of wrought with the surprise of they're you, not going through the official process. You were able to close them for an internship after your first year around the Christ- Christmas break, you said? Yeah, I came home to Atlanta, I call it, you know, December 15th before Christmas. And you're stressing um, out because everyone has interests lined up and you're like, I got to get in this, if I'm not doing banking, or, did you consider going banking to try and potentially? No, no, I, 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 I knew in my heart that at that time, so I came into school with all the Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers folks that got kicked out. So in 2008, yeah. so there were 300 people with better experience than me in business school and got people it. hadn't transitioned from investment banking post MBA into private equity in like three or four years. And I, I could see it in LinkedIn. So I said, if I didn't get in right out of business school, then I had to sort of make a complete career change, but I didn't, it didn't make sense. I hadn't seen anybody in four years go post MBA, investment banking, and then PE. Yeah, it's super rare, like I said earlier. So, okay, so you, you, you scrapped, you were able to kind of get this private equity internship down in Atlanta. How big was the fund? Was it a small fund, another search fund? What was it? No, $300 million industrial private equity firm started Great. by... Uh, Links Partners is the name of the firm. Uh-huh. Um, I love Links Partners. Second generation investor started it with Bet Hennigan. Um, incredible people. Um, non-paid internship, which I think you have to be 
ready to do um, if you really want to get into the industry. Um, I did so well, I got a, a, a well, at the time, huge, at, at now, pretty small bonus check and an umbrella. I still have that umbrella 10 years later uh, in my car because I, I, I earned it. You earned that umbrella. Yeah. So uh, do you mind sharing what the bonus check was at the end of the summer? 5,000 big dollars. Nice. Nice. So yes. put that into context of like, so you took, you only earned $5,000 over the summer. Some of your, some of your classmates earned what, like 60,000, 30,000, something like that. Crazy. Yeah. 60,000 bucks, depending. I mean, I was living in, in yeah. fraternity brothers basements and driving at uh, a 20 year old Honda with no air conditioning in Atlanta. Nice. Oh, that's anybody nice. who's lived in the South in those the summers, like reminds me when I was in New Orleans with no AC, uh, in yes. the car, I might have a lot of family down in New Orleans. Oh, sorry. Yes. My phone just went off. But so, um, okay. So this is, this is great. So you get that internship though. Mm-hmm. And the type of experience you're doing, you're just screening companies. Did you actually do any deals? I know it was only in the summer, but. So I got lucky again. So I didn't do any deals, um, but I was able to work on a sort of due diligence process and a post LOI transaction for a trucking company mm-hmm. they were looking at buying in South Carolina. Um, the deal didn't consummate, but of course, you know, being in diligence is far more close to the actual action than just screening companies. And so I was. Cause you're running a process. You're running a process. Essentially. Yeah. Fortunately, um, there were other processes going on. So I got a chance to actually lead the one that I was working on. That's awesome. And it was just a complete, complete crash course. I mean, I would get there before everybody do my best to keep up, get every stay after everybody left and then call my wall street guys that had already been doing PE to get like a lifeline from like seven to seven 30, whenever I could catch them. What, and what is this quality earnings bullshit? What is this? What is this other thing? What is it like? Yeah. I can't, what IRR I, I is there. reasonable. Oh my God. This thing is yeah. all over the place. Why is the balance sheet not balancing? How do I do this? How do I present this 10 tab model in, yeah. in, in two minutes to a 50 year old second generation investor? Yeah. I needed yeah. a lot of help. Yeah. Stressful. So did you, um, okay. So you had that, you go back to school and then did they say to you, Hey, maybe you can come back after school and come full time. Or there's just no seat. There's no seats for you. There was no seats. And in all fairness, and, um, the managing director at the time said, Hey, you're not ready yet. I mean, in all fairness, you know, the people who are investment banking are way better at modeling than you at this point, mm-hmm. you need to sit down with some investment bankers and really sort of improve that. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that she was honest with me about that because, you know, I spent the time my second year doing that. And then so, but how did you end up land? You did end up landing another PE gig, right? I did. So, so how did you end up year, doing that? I mean, you had the internship, but it's still the odds are stocked, stacked against you with the with the other banker banking kids or pre MBA. I more people is- than my competition by far. If I showed you my list of two hundred and fifty people that told me no, you'd laugh. But I just no. on the phone. I didn't do any of the McKinsey, any of the Goldman recruiting. Okay. I was alumni network on the phone. Can I work for you? No. Who can I work for? Can I work for you? No. Who should I talk to? Can I work for you? How could I work for you? What kind yeah. of, have you ever seen anybody hire someone who hadn't been pre-MBA? How does anybody get into this? And finally, what happened is through those calls, um, an advocate, another Morehouse alum who was working at Windjammer Partners at the time, mm-hmm. sent me a requisition for a job that was sent to the Harvard Alumni, uh, Harvard Business School Alumni Network, yeah. for a full-time position at the Watermill Group um, in Boston. And it was sort of January of my second year. And I called him and said, hey, look, don't you want the best candidate, not the best one available now? It's my last semester at HBS. I mean, gosh, I could work 30 hours a week now. And then in May, I can work full time. I think this is better for you to do this than kind of pick some whoever person who can do it now. I mean, it's a three month difference. And so I was able to convince them to start me. I started February 1, my second year, like that final semester. 
So you start working 30 hours a week, trying to, everyone else is partying, having their full-time gigs lined up yeah. and you're. <laughs> yeah, hustling <laughs> you're... is what I was doing. I mean, there's no way to say no to something like that. You, you know, I was hoping for one opportunity. I got one, I, yes. <laughs> okay. So I mean, then, I could have signed it as soon as they sent it. Yes. So you could, you convinced them to let you kind of do a project, but it's still just a project. It wasn't a full-time offer, right? No, I was assigned a full-time job offer in oh, February, was... my final year. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you were partying <laughs> a little bit, no, but you had to actually start working with them. Well, yeah. I mean, it was interesting. I, I, I bare minimal, minimally viable partying. I mean, I was learning private equity at a, at a real full-time firm while finishing school. It, you know, it, it, it was just a lot. Again, it was a lot. Yeah. You were learning a lot probably in those six months or whatever, that's five months. So yeah, I see it here, January. So you were there for, um, for, for a year, year. Mm -hmm. for a year. So tell me a little bit why, why only a year? Like you'd worked so hard to get into private equity. Were you, were you still kind of didn't feel like you're up to, up to speed on the modeling or did you feel like, Hey, you were there at that point. What, no. what happened so that you would jump, you know, work so hard through business school only to, to jump to, it looks like, um, a strategy role. Yeah, so um, this is sort of the other piece of life, right? Sometimes absolute money grab is not the only thing that's important to you. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in Michigan. I had moved my mother and my brother down to Atlanta after undergrad, after some messy stuff personally I won't get into here. Mm -hmm. And so um, after business school, after going to the number one business school in the world, I'm a two and a half hour plane ride from the people I love. Um, and it felt like I was, you know, what they call hustling backwards. Like, to your point, you work as hard as you can, you do all this amazing stuff. And now am I looking at a five-year career in Boston and I can only see my family like once every two months. And then my mom's asking me, hey, you moved me to Atlanta, you're gonna move me to Boston. Yeah. Um, so I had made a decision at that point to come back to Atlanta and sort of figure out how to keep my career going. Um, it wasn't easy, Atlanta is not a financial center. Meaning you wanted to be down close to family, you wanted to be in the Southeast. Um, that's it. And, and you said, okay, it's got to be Atlanta. So you started looking at companies and, and opportunities down there. And that's when kind of the position at Workday came along. And how did you find Pretty that much. just through just talking to alum and stuff like that? And it was just a natural fit. Yeah. And in fairness, some of the stuff that's not on my LinkedIn, and I'm giving this <laughs> to the audience because I think your folks will appreciate this particularly. Uh, I came back to Atlanta. I did a quick stand at Home Depot. Um, didn't work. I um, was leaving Home Depot and was working with a mentor of mine that was one of the 250 calls I had at HBS, yeah. showing him deals. So I was showing him deals and just, you know, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? I had my Holland Capital one pager going to Mezzanine Lenders trying to figure it out. And then I was on the Harvard Business School Alumni Network and saw this Workday job. I didn't know what Workday was. Most people didn't at that time, to be honest. Yeah. And I had an interview with them and I asked, the final question was, um, can I work remotely? Like, yeah, the whole job is remote. I was like, whoa, yes sign me up because I knew if I had a remote job, I could still do my deal stuff. So I actually bootstrapped the first three years of Ellsworth Partners working a full-time job at Workday while I was spending 40, 15 hours with my, 40 to 50 hours with my mentor slash business partner on Ellsworth Partners. So I actually did those. That's amazing. So yeah, so you were like, it's a remote, so the, the Workday position, which you were there for three years, mm -hmm. that, was a, that was a fully remote position, even though they're based in Atlanta? Um, so they're based actually in Pleasanton, California, but they you were based here. You were I was based, based in Atlanta. Atlanta, but at the time I was on a six person team of sort of sales ops, people doing business cases for their sales force. I covered everything from New York to Houston. So it was all about getting to where they were selling. And so very little sales were happening in Atlanta. So it was just every 
week or every two weeks I was on a plane going somewhere to talk to, you know, whoever about workday software. And then, you know, I wake up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, run my models, go do the sales meeting at eight, talk to the people. But explain to that a little bit. So like explain to people, the listeners. So I think you said it in your, your intro, kind of the bio, but like to, this job was remote and you, but you're still having to fly places, give pitches, trying to close these, this, these software deals basically. Mm-hmm. But during that whole time, you were bootstrapping your own business. Yes. So explain what that business exactly was and why. So this, it was from an alum, one of the 250 people you had kind of made a connection with at HBS. Mm-hmm. You had kind of partnered with him or her, but tell me, explain how that even took Yeah, place. so for everyone here, if you want to get a job in private equity, one of the easiest way to do it is to start showing deal people deals. Like stop asking for a job, go find a deal on Biz by Sell or BizQuest or something and show it to somebody. So that's Say what that I was again, doing. Where? Biz by? Biz by Sell, BizQuest. I mean, there's hundreds of deal listing sites, but yeah. business brokers list deals, go find one that you like and go show it to a deal person. Yeah. Um, so what ended up happening is right around the time I started at Workday, the exercise for three or four months showing a mentor deals, he said, hey, I actually like this. We should work together and formalize this. So we started an independent sponsor company called Ellsworth Partners, mm-hmm. where him and I looked at deals between two and eight million dollars in EBITDA, industrial stuff, kind of similar to what I did at Watermill, um, looking to do those deals as independent sponsors. So private equity groups without a dedicated fund, you raise capital while you're in diligence. So I did that while I was doing the workday job. How do you even do that? Like independent, independent, it's a big thing now, these independent sponsors, like it's very common now for people coming out of HBS, Wharton, wherever the top schools be like, I'm going to go buy my own business. Right. But like, don't you need to know the right people to have that have those, that, those big pockets? So that was the thing and why it was important for me to work with somebody who had already been doing it. So my business partner and mentor was a guy who had worked at a billion dollar firm for eight years mm-hmm. and then had been out for 15 years doing independent deals. So he had the relationships, he had the how to get stuff done. He had the tutelage and I just needed the So he had, he had basically the contacts that were ready to pony up whatever, 5 million, 10, $20 million, whatever you guys needed to get the deal done. Right. Got it. Okay. And so um, how. I would assume the power dynamics of that, though, when you're making a deal with him, he's bringing a lot of value to the table. Yes. <laughs> Whereas you're like, yeah, you're look, you're doing a lot of the work and the grind, but like, tell me a little bit about that, like negotiation, because he's like, let's formalize it. But then was he like, okay, yeah, you get five percent of the upside, or like you get two percent of the upside? What was that like? So it was it was, it was nice and then a bit messy too. So I think he was a great, um, well-intentioned guy, and so he said the only partnership that I understand is fifty-fifty. Otherwise, it's not really a partnership and it's um, a dictatorship to an extent or sort of big partner, little partner. And so our operating agreement was 50-50, although the negotiations weren't, right? So we did what he wanted to do, but in our operating agreement, we were 50-50. So what did that mean? It meant I was learning as an apprentice. We really did split the work about 50-50. So people think I was looking at deals and he was running models and raising capital, you know, it was really just 50 50 in everything. And so I think his purpose was both to get deals done and to, to teach me how to get deals done, which I think is sort of part of the apprenticeship model. Um, and again, there was no salary, right? So he wasn't paying me. I was offering work for the opportunity to help him get deals done. And so that was sort of the arrangement that we had. But when you got, a, a, did you get a deal done with him? Sure, we did two or three deals, add-ons into his portfolio. 
Um, we got close on a couple of platform acquisitions and just didn't get a platform acquisition over the finish line. So, and so what were those, like, how big were those acquisitions? They were like half million to a million two in EBITDA. Okay. Mainly in the tow truck industry. That's where, um, one of the bigger portfolio companies was. And then, um, when you guys would acquire those businesses, did you actually like do a lot of operational stuff to help them and go in there and get your hands dirty? Or were you just, Hey, tuck them into your portfolio and you have a team or what was that like? We were very hands-on, particularly at the beginning. You know, when yep. you buy a company that's under a million dollars or add a million dollars of EBITDA, you're typically not buying much in process, not buying much in systems, yep. not buying much in terms of financial infrastructure. And so you end up having to sort of be the stuff that you need in the company until the company can afford the stuff itself or you can integrate it with the mothership. Yep. So, um, you know, the role that we were playing was not just advisor, but actually, you know, I was interim CFO with some of those companies, you know. I was running some of the financial reporting for the lenders. Um, you just kind of get in there and get done what you need to get done. Oh, okay, so you were you were partners with with him for about three years. Is that accurate? Correct. Yeah. And then, so tell me how, like, uh, when and what transitioned, or how, what was going on? Were you thinking, hey, I want to do this myself? Were you thinking, hey, I really needed a salary? This is not paying the bills. What was the what was going on? Um, so about three years into it, we hadn't got a platform acquisition done. And so platform mean like big enough, like a big enough, like anchor. Yeah, and one that I could own the equity in the mothership, right? So the add-on acquisitions, because of him owning the company already, the part that I owned was so small because it was all the risk was beaten out. You know, we were getting debt to finish those acquisitions, not equity. And so the ownership that I had was very, very, very small. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're working sort of in a bootstrap way and you're younger in your career, you have to get stuff done. Like you can't work for free and sort of pontificate about deals. So what I sort of realized is that um, my partner was effectively semi-retired, right? Like he was in his fifties going on sixties. He had already kind of done the personal guarantee stuff. Um, and, and when you do a deal, you think about owing somebody 20 or $30 million. And now you have a board that's kicking your butt and sort of your freedom gets restricted again. I just don't think it was all that appetizing to him unless it was sort of a, a, a perfect type deal. And so, and so I he, really. And so, and so there was a little yeah. bit of a conflict around like he want, didn't necessarily want to do the same types of deals that, that, that you were ready to go. Exactly. And he's like, oh, why are we going to rock the boat here? <laughs> he's exactly. like, this isn't, this isn't a slam dunk. And you're like, well, we can work on it and make it a slam dunk. I get it. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. So there's a little bit of that. Well, that makes sense. There's like a generational thing, like you're ready to go. He's like, it's got to be perfect. And so I can right. see there's some tension there, even though he was giving you 50-50 of that. that. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, looking back on it, part of what I was looking to do was to be an independent sponsor. And I think part of the beauty of that model is that you don't have to do things, right? You're not forced to put capital to work. And so you could say tension, but it was also sort of, I learned sort of the, the, the flexibility of the independent sponsor model through the fact that, you know, he was in his 50s and effectively retired. You know, he didn't have, he, he didn't, he didn't owe anybody a significant enough amount of money where he couldn't go spend three weeks with his wife. And that right. was kind of the life that I wanted to. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about kind of how you thought about your transit and then the next transition. Sure. So I still wanted to work on deals. I just needed sort of the freedom to do it without a, a, a partner that was semi-retired. So yeah. I spun out and started Spartan Capital, which was my own instrument to go do deals about the same size. I looked at some stuff that was sort of under 2 million. So I'd look at stuff that was seven, $800,000 in EBITDA. Yeah. Uh, but it was essentially the similar thesis to- And those, sorry, for, for the listeners, those those companies that are doing about 700K of, of EBITDA, they typically go for like a little Three bit times. of a compressed multiple, right? 
Yep, typically three times, and typically there's sort of at least thirty percent seller financing. So effectively, you know, a little over two times. A little over two times, um, you got to come up with a little over two times capital. So if it's a seven hundred k, it's two point one million deal, but you're only really having to come up with one point four or one point five. Yeah, okay. So so tell me a little bit about who you knew. Did you have enough contacts at that point where you could help with the financing, or did you have? I mean, I don't think you had a million dollars yeah, saved in the bank at that point, right? No, I was I was flushed with relationships and opportunity. I mean, I had a database of probably you know two three hundred mezzanine lenders, um, you know Got four it. or five hundred senior lenders, um, you know a bunch of family offices and sort of high net worths that did deals. I mean, I inherited my business partner's database because we used it. It was in our CRM, so I had called yeah. the same people, pitched the same deals. Yeah, yeah, I was a known entity, not you know thirty years known, but I wasn't you know yeah. I wasn't the newest kid on the block either. So I leveraged those relationships to take a run at some at a couple of things. Um, the main industry I was looking at at the time was durable medical equipment. And so people who distribute like wheelchairs, CPAP, PPAP machines, so sort yep. of healthcare equipment for older people typically who are taking care of themselves in their home. Um, and, you know, in fairness, I had about, about two years of runway um, and kind of uh, took a run at a, at a pretty big deal sort of near the one year mark and the deal blew up. And so why? Um, it's very common <laughs> for deals yeah. to blow up, but why did this one blow up or can you share? Um, so, yeah, no, absolutely. So I had equity guys that were fraternity brothers of mine from tech that were sort of older than I was. Um, and one of their mentors was owner of a business in a similar industry. Ooh. And so we were sort of leveraging him to be sort of an advisor and sort of help us with the transaction. And what I didn't realize at the time was that part of the reason he was a mentor of one of my buddies was because he was getting business from my buddy's company. And so he actually had no interest when I really think about it in creating an economic instrument significant enough for my buddy to leave his day job. And so the guy, our, my equity guy's mentor blew the deal up in like a, a sign of, like it was a weird kind of torpedo kind of way. And um, yeah. I was kind of left pretty extended. I'll say it that way. So you're for diligence about, yourself. What's that? paying for diligence yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of at this stage and tell me kind of when, what the next kind of, so you're here, it's like what, and now you're 2017, 18, mm -hmm. 2017. I kind of went to the drawing board, honestly, um, Pat, yeah. and said, Hey, look, I have these amazing skills that I want to use in the marketplace. Um, the independent sponsor thing has not worked out for me yet. Um, so, you know, do you want to keep beating a door down or try to figure something else out? How do you sort of play your hand in the market? And what I decided to do was to start a boutique M&A advisory firm, helping other independent sponsors and, and acquisition entrepreneurs, which are just probably less informed independent sponsors, mm -hmm. arguably, and sometimes career people who want to go buy a company, helping them execute transactions. I mean, I knew good and, and darn well how difficult it was to find good advisors for deals, a million, two, four, five million dollars in EBITDA. I knew how intense it got as a sponsor trying to manage a portfolio company, have 10 deals in your pipeline, two of which you have LOIs on. Um, and I also realized that most of the other people who were selling these services were selling them, A, I think ineffectively. So like a buy side person on a seven person investment bank on the sell side that never felt trustworthy to me. Mm -hmm. um, and they also weren't using sort of digital means to market. So I saw an opportunity to sort of own M&A advisory and, and digital marketing. And, and so I went off to start Guardian Due Diligence, which is the company I, I own and run currently. And so you started that one? 2017. 
Okay. So it's been a good three years. Tell me how that, that, I mean, it's always hard starting a new business, but tell me about like the trajectory of, of getting clients and how that's been. I mean, you, you obviously have, you had a lot of contacts through all the lenders and all stuff. Are they feeding you deals as an advisor? Are they recommending you? How are you actually, and you said, Hey, there's an opportunity around digital. Like you mean like social media, LinkedIn, what are you doing to, to generate? You're getting on podcasts like this, but what else? Sure. No. Um, so f- the first two years, it was all word of mouth from people who I knew. Mm-hmm. So it was independent sponsors or Harvard Business School friends who had companies that were looking to do add-ons. It was all sort of, you know, five, 10-year relationships initially, right? And, what, and most what, times when you start a company, that's where you start. In your how do you even make, like, like, what's the fee structure look like for such small deals? Like, I know you're obviously not making the same as like a investment bank that's doing a $200 million deal or $300 million deal. But if it's like a $5 million business or less easy numbers at $10 million acquisition. Sure. And you're the, the main M&A advisor for that. What would, what would the fee? So it all depends on what you negotiate. Um, arguably when you start a company, you sort of negotiate probably a little bit less than you would, you know, 10 years in. <laughs> yeah. So on the low end, you sort of, um, at least I way I structured it was a retainer just kind of cover my downside and my hours. Yep. And then a success fee that looked like a Lehman formula if the deal closed. Yeah. So it gave me sort of a steady coupon and then some upside opportunity for closed stuff. Cause you know, during diligence, you know, people aren't going to pay you for 80 hours a week, right? So yeah. you kind of have to give yourself some ability to get upside on that. Um, and then what was interesting is that there's a lot more work to do on smaller deals because there's no like Harris Williams Investment Bank or Goldman Sachs or Bank of America showing you some 100 page book with like, you know, 400 pages in a data room. It's like, you know, two tax returns and a one like, page They're like, what data room? Here's like 10 <laughs> documents, go figure it out, right? Exactly. And so you price it almost like you're consulting and then you have the deal kicker on the Lehman formula and then you try to sort of... And what is that kicker? I mean, maybe you don't want to share your pricing here, but like a range. So like a retainer would be like, what, 10K a month, 5K a month, something like that, just to keep you... Somewhere in between there. And yeah. then, you know, the Lehman formula on a, on a 5K, you know, deal can be, you know, over a hundred grand. Yeah. On a, on a success fee. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and so you kind of, a lot of word of mouth for a couple of years and then how else are you marketing yourself? I think it's, I love to hear the hustle. I love to hear entrepreneurial stuff because you talked about social media and it's obviously a huge opportunity. If mm-hmm. Are you putting out stuff on yourself? Are you doing YouTube? What are you doing? To, to- yeah. So I started taking digital marketing classes a couple of years ago. Nice. Uh, you know, eight years. You're going to have to share some secrets. <laughs> uh, yeah. Go to work like anything else. I mean, the funny part is we all know how to do it for deals or investment banking or whatever. Right. So we read volumes of stuff. Um, anything that you want to get good at, in my mind, you, you go read the people who are smart about it. What are they saying? What are they putting out? Um, I think, you know, in the next 10, 20, 30 years of this, there's going to be a lot more digital connections driving business than golf courses and totally. expensive lunches. And so um, if you get good at sort of managing a digital marketing platform, which is your LinkedIn, which is your website and AdWords, which is your, your, your email marketing, which is all of these things, you know, I had to go back to like marketing one-on-one from business school and like, yeah, tell me, about your, this time. tell me about the thought process. Let's talk a little bit about entrepreneurial startups and all that stuff. I think it's fun. Sure. And I like obviously know that world now after yeah. 14 years of running this. Yeah. this yes, you, do. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny because people think it, the reach is really big. Wall Street Oasis, the business is really small. Um, so, you know, as much as we've done a great job in terms of building community and stuff where we're still, uh, we're still working and working our ways up to, to grow the business. But in terms sure. of, um, I'd love to hear your thought process in terms of what you thought of building your personal brand versus building the um, due diligence brand, the guardian, guardian, right? 
Due diligence. Yeah. Like guardian due diligence. So I knew it was very hard to sell businesses with your last name in them. Yeah. And so I learned that with my first Holland Capital thing several years ago. That so like, the thought process is if I grow this to a big enough uh, advisory fund, I could potentially sell it down the road. I can sell it. I can bring on partners. I can collaborate. I can sort of be a face that doesn't do any work. I have optionality. Yeah. If it's if it's Holland, you know, diligence services or Holland and, and partners, <laughs> then people want to see Elliot every single time. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that business doesn't scale. Yeah. So that was my first thought is don't put your name in it. The second thought is what is the hardest part of executing deals, right? And it's diligent. It's which deal should you do? Which deal should you leave? And how much time should you spend on any particular deal? Mm -hmm. That's the crux. The great investors beat down diligence better than the mediocre ones. And the ones that are just starting don't even know that that's the thing. And so my thought was, look, um, start with due diligence because people are going to be troubled with it. It's hard. It's mm -hmm. complex enough to sort of bite it off and, and solve it for people. And then over time, you'll, you'll become sort of a, a more comprehensive investment bank of sorts on the buy side um, yep. as people sort of need you for more things. So that was my thought process when I started. Very cool. So a lot of little twists and turns there um, throughout your career. Tell me a little bit about just like your life. Are you like still grinding 80 hour a week? Like, what are you doing now? That's your own thing. I mean, it's your own thing. So it probably yeah. doesn't hurt, but. Um, as much as um, before, but tell me a little bit about like just how you balanced all this stuff because there's been a lot of kind of twists and turns. You've worked for other people, you've worked for the larger uh, software startups. You, mm -hmm. you kind of run the game and the consulting firm. So tell me a little bit about like how that's progressed. Sure. So you know, for the first eight years out of business school, it was absolutely a grind. You know, I was working as hard as anybody on Wall Street. You know, maybe piecing together two or three things at a time, but sort of definitely putting in hours. Um, and part of this was to enable myself to put in hours if I wanted to, mm -hmm. but not have to. And so right now I can do as many deals as I want to, but I don't have to do every deal that comes. Um, I don't have to work with every customer that comes, you know, there's a lot of jerks in finance, yes. as we all know, <laughs> I don't have to work for them <laughs> or with them. Um, good. It's a high enough service business, you know, with a high enough margin yeah. that there's enough juice for the sort of the squeeze. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's strategic, you know, client relationships that sort of matter. And so I'm able to manage a way more healthy sort of work environment now um, and, and get to know a lot of great investors and, and sort of industry participants as well. Very cool. It sounds like a, like a fun ride and uh, I'll be watching them to see uh, how it grows. But uh, yeah, is well, anything else you. you want to share with the listeners in terms of um, where they can find you um, or any sort of final words of wisdom, you know, that sure. you've learned kind of coming through your path. I'll leave one word of wisdom and then I'll share where you can find me. Um, sure. I, I think when I got to business school, it was sort of the quintessential time in my career where I had to either put up or shut up. You know, I'm in line behind 300 people that had already been on Wall Street in a private equity or investment banking uh, capacity. And the fancy Harvard thing wasn't going to put me to the top of the line. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people who find themselves just not on the, the, the A path, right? Because you can't sort of, if you're at, you know, Pitt and you want to get into private equity, you can't sort of all of a sudden go to Yale, right? Um, the way you beat this thing is you work harder than the other people doing the stuff they don't want to do. People don't like getting on the phone. They don't like cold calling. They don't like emailing. They don't like managing a CRM full of people. They don't like hearing no. They don't like going and finding deals and then giving them to people essentially for free to get a job. If you can do those things, you can win. 
and, and people will tell you that's a waste of time and you don't need to do that. You can just apply. Good luck. But I'll tell you, the people that get my attention right away are the people who are already hustling, showing me value when they start. So I, I think that's sort of my um, words of wisdom I would embark upon anyone listening. In terms of how to find me, um, guardiandudiligence.com, um, D-U-E, of course. Um, and then LinkedIn, Elliot Holland, pretty easy to find there. I'm very responsive in both places. And so- Two L's um, and, and two T's. Two L's, two T's. And then actually you can also find me on Elliot-Holland.com. So E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D.com. And um, my, my emails and phone numbers are there and I'd love to speak with you. Awesome. Well, Elliot, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing your wisdom. Patrick, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.